0: This is Common Threads, an Interfaith Dialogue.
1: Hello, I'm Fred Stella. President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association, welcome to another edition of Common Threads. You know, it is interesting how we sometimes stereotype religions. By that, I don't necessarily mean that we think derogatory things about them, but we tend to associate certain ideas and acts with certain faiths, and sometimes we box them in, sometimes reducing a complex philosophical and social system to just a couple of standard practices. For instance, when we think of Buddhism, often we think of meditation, even though many different traditions offer a similar discipline. We tend to think of Christians when we think of the notion of social activism. yet That's an incomplete picture as well. I say this as a prelude to something that happened to me as I was reading the Grand Rapids Press recently, and I noticed an article about a local gentleman who has written a book with his mother on interracial families called Marriage Beyond Black and White. The photo in the paper indicated that he himself was in such a relationship. As soon as I saw that, I thought of the Baha'is. I recalled how many interracial marriages I knew of in that particular community, and how racial harmony is such an important element of their teachings. Well, lo and behold, as I read on, I found out that the author, David Douglas, was indeed a Baha'i. His story and that of his mother seemed to be a fascinating account. When I was able to get a hold of the book and actually read it, my guess was proved true. And I must admit that we here at Common Threads have been rather remiss in procuring Baha'is for guests for quite a while now. Baha'is have done a tremendous amount of work for interfaith relations over the years, and we decided it was time to pay more attention to this wisdom tradition. So with me in the studio today is the author of the aforementioned book, David Douglas. He is a lifelong educator, as well as a husband, father of three children, and a member of the Baha'i faith. He's an advocate for civil and human rights. The third child of Barbara and Carlisle Douglas, an interracial couple who met, fell in love, and married at a time when such marriages were outlawed in 27 states. David spent his formative years in Chicago's Altgeld Gardens a housing project and in Detroit, where the family became the first family of color on the block. His career in education has included teaching at an alternative high school special education instruction, teaching college courses in multiculturalism and racism, school counseling, and serving as an assistant principal at a middle school. David has actively worked throughout his adult life to end racism by building bridges between children of different ethnic backgrounds in schools and by working with local community groups and institutions to reduce human suffering and increase tolerance. As the first president of the Alliance for Cultural and Ethnic Harmony in Holland, he led a grassroots organization that dramatically improved racial relations in that community. He frequently speaks to civic and social organizations about methods for eliminating discrimination and racism. And David is married to Kim Douglas, a poet and professor right here at Grand Valley State University. And David, welcome to Common Threads. Thank you, Fred. I'm glad to be here. Nice introduction, uh, whoever, whoever puts this together. I was at a talk the other night that said that he just lives to go from one speaking engagement to another so he can hear introductions read right about himself. It, it, it provides him his self-worth. <laughs>
2: well, I can see. Actually, that was a very uh, flattering introduction. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was actually put out by Baha'i Publishing, and I really do appreciate it. It's accurate, and it's uh, fairly
1: complete. Well, good, good. Uh, I happen to, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction... Uh, see the article about you in the paper, and also talk to David Moore here at WGVU, who uh, encouraged me to contact you. Uh, After reading the article, there wasn't that much encouragement that was needed. Uh, And I must say that this book, Marriage Beyond Black and White, An Interracial Family Portrait, is just one of the most readable books I've come across in a long time. Uh, it, it, It just really draws you in, both your mother's portion and yours. So I thought, first of all, we'd talk about your mother's portion and yours, and how those two portions came to be. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, it's
2: a very unusual book because it has—it's um, half written by my mother, half written by myself, and it has my father's poetry in between some of the chapters there. So, in a, a very real sense, it's a family book. Um, In a certain sense, you could say that the book started in 1953. That was 10 years after my parents had gotten together, and they had decided after going through some of the trials and tribulations of interracial marriage that they really wanted to write a a book. They wanted to share their story with the world, I think for two reasons. One, they wanted people to understand that interracial marriage could be a very good thing, and they had a very strong relationship, and by that time they had four lovely children, I might add, (laughs) and... uh, were really had high hopes of um, not only success in marriage, but success in their careers as well. Uh, They also wanted people to know about uh, the oppression that they felt as an interracial couple in the hopes that people would change. Uh, However, they were unable to find a publisher, and after writing three chapters, they kind of gave up. The book was resurrected in 1995 when my father succumbed to cancer. Um, He came down with liver cancer and died within the space of three months and at that point my mother was really inspired at the age of 86 to take up her pen again and began rewriting the story of their marriage she wrote furiously for six months she stayed up late nights um she often wept recalling the the experiences that they had both the positive ones and the, the the negative ones and uh after six months, she succumbed to a series of heart, as- heart attacks and strokes, uh, so she died. As she lay in the, the, the hospital with uh, tubes you know, coming out of everywhere, um, I, realizing that she was not going to complete the book, promised her that I would finish it, and that's when I started my portion. Uh, or I resumed my portion. I did some journaling a little bit earlier, uh, a few years earlier, and uh, had started writing about my life, but I stopped when it got difficult. Um, then I was remotivated to continue that work and wrote my story, uh, did my best to put it together with her story and in the process looked over over some of my father's old poems and really found that they coincided very well with many of the themes of the chapters in my mother's portion of the book. Um, So I think the thing that really ties it together is my mom poured her heart out into it and talked about the racial experiences that she had. um, And I put my heart into it as well and so you see that we call it a family interracial family chronicle because it really does
1: span a number of years let's talk about your parents your mother has just an awesome resume uh... tell us a little bit about that and her interest in china
2: well she was an unusual woman she was born in ann arbor michigan to a pair of very liberal parents uh... who at that time did such things as invite blacks into their home held social gatherings for blacks, uh, acted uh, as allies to African Americans in the sense that when they could not find housing in the area would help them find housing. When they couldn't uh, find stores that would deal with them, um, uh, open their the doors of their stores to them. So my parents were, my mother's parents were very liberal. Uh, my mother got a, her... Um, bachelor's degree and master's degree from the University of Michigan, and uh, right after completing her master's degree in fine art, uh, went off alone to China. Uh, And this is 1936, just before the uh, beginning of World War II. She studied at a uh, couple of Chinese museums and would like to have remained there for an extended period of time, but in 1939, the Japanese began invading China, and uh, her uh, port of entry, Singapore, was cut off, uh, sh- and she literally fled before the advancing Japanese army for um, uh, geez, uh, about 1,500 miles on foot, on donkey, rickshaw, boat. Uh, uh, anyway, she left through Indochina, which is now known as Vietnam. After that, uh, she wrote a uh, I'll say a travelogue, if you will, or, or the story, an essay about that experience. And that won an award from the University of Michigan, the Hopwood Award. It's a very prestigious award that's given to University of Michigan students and graduates. Uh, from there she um, went on to meet my father, established herself as, a, as an educator, um, taught school, and in 1970 uh, wrote another book, um, When the Fire Reaches Us, which is a story, uh, a novel, about the Detroit riots, and that was published. So she uh, uh, was
1: quite an accomplished writer. And uh, taking a look at your father's side, he, he was by no means uh, a second fiddle to her in, in terms of intellect and ambition. Uh, perhaps social constraints held him back a little?
2: Well, I'd say social constraints held him back quite a, quite a way. That and, and family conditions. Well, my mother was born to a very stable family that was established in middle class. My father was uh, born to um, a family uh, where his parents were not able to hold it together, and they broke up, they, they divorced, leaving him uh, to struggle uh, in poverty from the age geez, of 12 up. He dropped out of school when he was 14 and had to, had to work uh, Uh, to support himself and to support his family, and then did not actually complete his high school uh, degree until he was 22 years old. Um, And he met my mother shortly after that. Uh, Now, even though he struggled all this time, he was a very uh, literate person. He read quite a bit, and he began to write poetry. Uh, They met in 1942 uh, when they were both working as part of a National Youth Administration camp that's kind of a, uh, a youth uh, training uh, employment training program he taught um a radio repair and she was a combination social director librarian and uh english teacher and he heard rumors of this beautiful beautiful librarian and went to the library not to check the books out mm-hmm. but to check her out um they fell in love
1: instantly in uh, Looking over the book, I find some some very interesting things uh, and some that that, uh, encourage questions. For instance, you say in your introduction that your parents taught you that there was one race, the human race, and you learned that racial distinctions are arbitrary and illogical. Could you explain that? I I mean, it sounds, somebody might think that, that what that means is 12 generations of Swedes could produce uh an asian i uh, what do you mean by arbitrary racial distinctions well
2: let's just take a, a look at it first of all how you define black people and how you define white people varies um according to the culture that you come from and also it has varied historically over over the years um uh, I think in the early 1600s, they wrestled with that question legally because they wanted to know who could be slaves and who could not be slaves. So in the early 1600s, it was decided legally in many states or territories at that time that um, if you were part black or part African, you were all black, so that the offspring of a white person, usually a slave holder, and a black person, usually a slave, could be enslaved. So that definition was established uh, roughly 400 years ago for economic purposes. Wasn't? Didn't
1: they say that one drop of blood could make you black? That's exactly and, right. And what does that really mean? Do you have any idea what is one drop of blood? Well, I think that means w-
2: even one ancestor in your remote past. Of course, it has nothing to do with blood, but at the time, they were talking about racial definitions, they thought in terms of blood and blood types. Now, if you look at... Um, Native Americans or Indians, American Indians, um, who's an American Indian and who's not, depends upon often tribal uh, definitions and requirements. And that can be anything from a quarter to an eighth to a sixteenth to a thirty-second. So uh, that doesn't make any sense. Why is it not that if you have one drop of Indian blood, you're Indian, or one drop of uh, white blood, blood you're white i mean they're they're arbitrary and elite and and um illogical frequently made for political purposes now my parents didn't know that anything they didn't know at the time uh, all the scientific things that we know right now for example we know uh, that the human race originated in africa we know that as a fact. We know that the human beings are, uh, as far as their genetic makeup, are ninety nine point nine percent alike as far as their similarity. We know that there's uh, there's um, more variation within, say, the Swedish pop- population as far as racially as there as there is variation between, say, white people. Uh, from Europe and black people from Africa. Uh, scientists know that it's impossible to categorize people by race in any scientifically meaningful way. But my parents had a, a gut feeling for that scientific fact back in the 40s. And and so they raised us to believe that
1: we were all members of one human family. And how do you identify yourself? For instance, those uh, those surveys or uh, um, what the census, that's what I was trying to think Absolutely. of where you ch- have to check a box what well, do you check?
2: I need to tell you that there's been an evolution in my thinking over the years for example, in my younger years, I really went along with the, the idea that, that I was black principally because that's how society defined me, and even though my parents taught me that I was just a, a member of the human race, you know and that black did not make a whole lot of sense. Socially, it made sense to me, so I defined myself as black. Later on, I called myself African American because uh, that made more sense to me to get get away from the color thing and more towards a cultural thing, It also combines my African heritage with uh, my American heritage, um, uh, because a lot of people because I think people take. Um, well, let's see how I can put this. They're unduly, they place undue em- emphasis on race. Uh, often, when people ask the question, What am I? mean uh, you know, or what are you? I, I really just kind of play around with that, say, I'm a member of the golden race. Well, wait a mem- minute.
1: Wait, you mean people actually ask you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's like, you know, and they, and they
2: don't do it in the first few minutes, but you know, they can't figure me out. Do I, am I Cuban? Am I Libyan? You know, am, am I from somewhere in, in the, in the Middle East? Uh, Often, actually, usually, African Americans can identify me right away. They, they, they're so used to looking at the particular racial uh, distinctions that come along from the blends of races that that they have no trouble figuring out that I'm I'm black or at least part black. Um, in any case, um, on the census forms to answer your questions, I usually, I'm grateful that the census now has an interracial uh, category, a mixed race category, and that I can designate um, that I'm African American and European American and uh, also Indian, uh, Native American.
1: Which tribe do you know? Choctaw. Uh, Me too.
2: We're, a little a, bit, yeah. we're um, more closely related than we thought. Yeah, yeah
1: that's yeah, right. great. That's right.
2: Me too, a little bit, about an eighth for me.
1: Okay, okay. Um, let's get back to uh, black slash African American. I've spoken to a number of people of color who don't like the, uh, the label of African American because they say, I have no interest in Africa. I've never been there. I don't know anybody there. It's just not who I am. Have you ever heard that argument and do you have a response to it? Well,
2: first of all, I think that people have, I've heard the article argument, and I think people have a a right to identify themselves according to the terms they want to be called. So if uh, people who are uh, of African ancestry want to call themselves American or just human beings or uh, black, um, I think that that that's their right. At the same time, I think it's my right to identify how I want to be called. And uh, I'm most comfortable at this point with African American. Though I think, again, it gets away from the racial categories and leans more towards the cultural categories, which I think is more important. Um, Now, as far as separation from Africa and African culture, I think you only have to look around you to see that we, in fact, um, have as much... uh, African culture in this country, as we do um, uh, European culture. I mean, if you look at the music, if you look at the um, art, you know, a lot of the modern art, Picasso, in, in fact, was uh, inspired by African art. Um, if you look at the language, if you look at the pop culture,
1: very strong um, African influences on on all of those things. Some people, uh, black or white, just choose not to not to notice that as much, or, t- or to give. A proper uh, uh, um, respect to that, that's
2: true, and part of that is actually, I, I think the the fault of our educational system, which really fails to properly inform us of the contributions of most minority uh, cultures in this country. So we're not aware of the contributions of the Chinese or the the Japanese or um, uh, Africans or,
1: or Native Americans. this is true tell us uh, uh, some of the major challenges that you noticed not not just what was written before you were born but tell us of some of the major challenges that you personally observed with your parents marriage
2: all right now I need to tell you that some of them I really wasn't aware of how severe a challenge it was until uh, after long after I was grown but um, one of the the problems my parents faced was my father's chronic unemployment. Now, he was a, a brilliant man. Um, he wrote poetry. He was college educated. He had a college degree. Uh, yet he w- found himself being laid off. And I think that's common to many African Americans. You know, there's a whole last hired, first fired thi- uh, thing. Thing. Uh, which in, in essence leads to an unemployment rate that's uh, roughly twice what it is for whites. Um, that's one of the things. Another thing I, I noticed was that uh, my parents had very few friends. Now, I didn't realize that that had r- 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 racial overtones until much later when they explained that, you know, when they brought their friends home from work and their friends saw a interracial family... Uh, their friends couldn't deal with it and so kind of distanced themselves from my parents. Um, The other thing that was very noticeable for me was uh, just whenever we traveled any place as a family, from my earliest childhood memories, we always attracted attention wherever we went. And I think that led over the course of a uh, a few decades to my my father really getting the the, uh, idea that... uh, um, or not getting the idea, but having the feeling that it was unpleasant to go out in public uh, for entertainment pur- purposes. So w- during my my later years as a, as a family member, teenager, whatever, we didn't do anything as a family other than go out in public and take care of business, go shopping or whatever. Or, um... One respite or relief was our camping trips to Canada, where, I might add, the entire family agreed that we were treated differently. We were still a curiosity, but people um, talked to us, and they were positive in their relationship to us. Rather than here in the States, people uh, stared, and often the stares were hostile or unfriendly.
1: You mentioned in the book uh, several instances where you received hostility from whites that observed your parents' marriage. Uh, what about from from black, uh, the black community? Especially, I, I seem to remember that uh, black men who marry white women tend to get more uh, derogatory comments than the other way around. Did you know anything about that? Well, I, I think I need to
2: look at uh, my experience in different time frames. For example, when we were in Altgeld Gardens in the south side of Chicago before 1957, uh, we were very much welcomed and embraced by the black community. Uh, my parents had friends, uh, we had friends, the, all the kids on the block played together, Hide and Seek, Red Rover, um, we had block parties. It was, um, uh, for the most part, a very a positive experience for my family right there in Altgelt Gardens, and the only negative experiences we, we encountered were from white people when we left the gardens, essentially. Um, when we came to Detroit... In the late 50s, 1950s, um, I don't recall any, any particular um, rejection by the black community or for my family or, or for um, myself. Um, I think that at that particular time, people took us as uh, people, and we were pretty much welcomed
1: um, by black people that we knew. Can, now, I, can, I, wait, can I ask you to hold that Thought right there. And this is this is going to be an excellent uh, reason for people to tune in next week because we've run out of time for this episode. But and I we have a, f- a minute left and I want to talk about getting the book and we'll we'll take this up uh, next week. Uh, the book is Marriage Beyond Black and White, an interracial family portrait by my guest, David Douglas and portions written by his mother, Barbara Douglas and uh, uh, David. Uh, they can pick this up Barnes Noble, Barnes uh, and Noble, Borders, Walden Books,
2: Amazon dot com, um, BN dot com, which is Barnes Noble's website. But mm-hmm. it's pretty much available through any of the major chains, and all the smaller chain stores, the pop- mom and pop stores, can order it because it's available through the major warehouses.
1: Okay. I want to thank you so much, David, for being with us uh, here on Common Threads, and we'll look for you next week as well. My name is Fred Stella. Thank you for joining us. This is WGVU Radio.
0: Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue.
1: Hello, I'm Fred Stella. President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association, welcome to another edition of Common Threads. You know, I really have to hand it to my parents in one area. Growing up in the 60s through the 70s in Detroit, I saw their views on race evolve from somewhere around Georgia Redneck to, well, a civilized point of view. I do recall my father chastising me for bringing a black classmate from 8th grade over to the house. Within a few years, my brother and I were entertaining friends of many diverse backgrounds in our home. All of a sudden, things like that were just a non-issue. And I recall one specific event that really jolted my father to a new understanding. He was out jogging in a park near our Detroit home, and as he was coming back, he saw our next-door neighbor. Dad related to him that he'd just seen a guy, quote, black as the ace of spades, sitting under a tree with his arm around a blonde. He expected our neighbor to roll his eyes, shake his head, something to acknowledge disapproval. But our neighbor, good old Mr. Clyman, was a little more progressive than Dad. His retort was, great, we should see more of that. It's better than killing each other. Well, when Dad relayed the story at dinner, I could tell that Mr. Klyman really did give him something to think about. And one thing about my late father that I really respected was that he was capable of change. And change he did. I'm telling you all this because as a way to introduce our guest today here on Common Threads, David Douglas also spent a number of years growing up in Detroit, and he had to deal with my father's mentality in a much bigger way than I ever had to. The product of a black father and white mother, David writes about the challenges he and his family faced with a society that shunned such unions. He also writes about his spiritual journey, which led him to the Baha'i Faith a tradition that not only tolerates interracial relationships, but embraces them fully. David Douglas is a lifelong educator as well as a husband, father of three children, member of the Baha'i faith, and advocate for civil and human rights. The third child of Barbara and Carlisle Douglas, an interracial couple who met, fell in love, and married at a time when such marriages were outlawed in 27 states, David spent his formative years in Chicago's Altgeld Gardens housing project and in Detroit, where his family became the first family of color on the block. His career in education has included teaching at an alternative high school, special education instruction, teaching college courses in multiculturalism and racism, school counseling, and serving as an assistant principal in a middle school. David has actively worked throughout his adult life to end racism by building bridges between children of different ethnic backgrounds in schools and by working with local community groups and institutions to reduce human suffering and increased tolerance as the president of the alliance for cultural and ethnic harmony in holland he led a grassroots organization that dramatically improved race relations in that community he frequently speaks to civic and social organizations about methods for eliminating discrimination and racism david is married to kim douglas a poet and a professor right here at grand valley state university david was with us last week and we will continue our conversation today welcome back to common threads david Thank you, Fred. It's good to be here again. I feel so bad about cutting you off uh, last week. Let's recap. Uh, I just asked you about uh, feeling any antagonism from the black community growing up with a uh, black father and a white mother. We've already agreed that there was plenty of antagonism in the white community, and um, well, you mentioned in Chicago and Detroit in the black community back in the fifties and sixties. You did not, am I am I correct? N- that's correct. I'd say, principally in the in the
2: fifties in Chicago, that there we were welcomed by the uh, black community, even though we were rejected by the white community. Um, in the late fifties in Detroit, I'd say that was pretty much the same. Um, black community did not think uh, a whole lot. Uh, negatively about our our family. Things started to change in the 60s, though, as far as the black community goes, and that is there was a rise in uh, black pride and black nationalism, and there began, and black separatism as well. So there were some people at at that particular point um, who really denounced interracial marriage, though I didn't experience it personally um, but you know politically you'd hear people say that blacks and whites shouldn't mix and i but i felt it also in terms of uh, uh stares that i got when i was dating a white girl we were walking down the street in a black community i really looked. i really felt the host, same kinds of hostile stares that i used to feel from white people
1: uh, from both uh, uh, from boys yeah, and girls, from men uh, and women, m-
2: from men and women, A- at that particular point in time, I think uh, it really it's e- evolved to the point where uh, I think there are many African American women who have much stronger feeli- feelings on that issue than, say, the African American men. Just because uh, uh, I think there's um, uh, the perception that there are only a limited number of eligible black bachelors out there and the african-american women feel some feel that that for these african-american men to marry white is really to take away from their opportunities for finding uh, a suitable spouse suitable mate so i think that's where that comes from but um I've never experienced any kind of overt racism from black people based on my, my dating or marriage. Um, in, in the 60s, it was stairs. Nowadays, I, I think it's uh, very widely accepted among the black community uh, that is interracial marriage and interracial families. In fact, there have been some recent star- surveys that uh, say that 90% of our African-American population doesn't have a problem with interracial marriages.
1: Then again, we also know right now that there are more black female college graduates or more black women in college and that there is a concern that they probably would want to marry uh, college graduates as well within their own race. Uh, do, you, do you see a, a difficulty, a challenge emerging in the next uh, generation?
2: I'm not sure I can see far into the future at all. I do see continued problems with race relations that are based on our limited definitions of race and our limited understanding of race. And I really feel that our challenge, or my challenge in particular, is to help people take off the racial blinders and really see people as human beings. Now, I really do think that uh, that's, a thing, that's something that's much more easily said than done. But my efforts are towards helping all people, black, white, whatever color, uh, understand that we're human beings and the, that these racial definitions only perpetuate the pro- problem. Now, I, have, I really do believe that it's important for us to take pride in our cultural and ethnic heritage, but that's distinct from race. So there are many challenges with that, and uh, I certainly appreciate um, African American females who are really discriminated against on a number of different levels. You know, they're 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 women and they have uh, the burden of uh, discrimination against females and they're uh, minorities and they have carry that burden as well. And I certainly appreciate their struggle to uplift themselves. Uh, but I would hope that they would would regard me
1: and regard what I'm doing as a positive thing and not a negative thing. You know, last week was was a landmark show. You probably didn't notice it, but it was the first show of Common Threads where religion was not talked about. Uh, We just never broached the subject, and I know that that is a very important subject to you. Uh, And so I want to make sure that we don't leave this half hour (laughs) without talking about the fact that uh, you are a member of the Baha'i community. Let me ask you this. You grew up how Christian uh, was your family in terms of participation in, in a church? In fact, my parents were bo- both
2: alienated from the Christian dem- denominations that they were raised with. Uh, my father was raised as a Seventh-day Adventist and rebelled against that and rejected that. My mother was raised as a Methodist and rejected um, those teachings, principally because um, I guess there are two reasons. First, they saw uh, lots of unspiritual behavior um in the history of their their churches. Um, And secondly, they they saw racism in the history of their churches. Um, But also, they could never accept the belief that there was one God who had uh, this chosen group of people who were saved, and everybody else was going to go to hell. I mean, that just did not make any sense. They believed that there were good people of all races and religions and religious beliefs. So, so... So I was raised with a very liberal attitude um, with respect to uh, religion and pretty much left to discover religious truth on my own. I was allowed to go to church if I wanted to, uh, but I was also allowed to develop my own religious or spiritual
1: beliefs. Was there any time that you connected with the the uh, traditional black churches as, as a child, teenager? I
2: went to... Um, church with my friends on a couple of occasions and found it, uh, uh, stimulating, maybe even exciting, but, uh, could not accept the doctrines intellectually.
1: And so when you came to the Baha'i faith at, uh, at 21, what encouraged you, what drew you to that?
2: It was very interesting. I had heard about the Baha'i faith when I was 14, and my brother was dating a member of the Baha'i community. And I remember asking him what Baha'is believed. And he said they believed there's one God that um, all the founders of the world's religions taught about worshiping the same God and that mankind was one human family. And I remember thinking, that sounds like a religion that I could believe in. But I never pursued it because uh, my brother was dating this member of the Baha'i faith, and for me to go to a Baha'i meeting with him would be a younger brother tagging along on the older brother's date, and that just was not, <laughs> not acceptable. <laughs> so when I ran across the Baha'i faith at the age of 21 at the University of Michigan, I, I remember those positive things, and um, I remember seeing posters at a display uh, uh, booth in uh, a, comm- a commons area at the University of Michigan where they had political and religious displays. I remember seeing posters that said, uh, ye are flowers of one garden, meaning people are all flowers of the same human garden, uh, independent inves- investigation of truth, uh, the equality of men and women, the essential harmony of science and religion. And I rem- all of those simple and basic teachings struck a chord in me. Then I, pers- I asked the person who was there a little bit more, and he told me about Baha'u'llah, who is the founder of the Baha'i Faith, and that Baha'u'llah taught that all of the revealed religions were in fact founded by prophet- prophets of God, and all have essentially the same purpose, which is to uh, teach us spiritual truths and teach us how to get along with each other on this planet Earth. And that made sense to me. And... Uh, really those teachings captured my heart and then when I met the Baha'i community uh, I saw uh, people really from Germany, from uh, Asia, from Africa uh, blacks and whites together in one room um, really happy uh, harmonious uh, really stimulating each other and accepting and even loving each other and that really convinced me that this was uh A major
1: religion and that it was really the right religion for me. If you're just joining us, you're listening to WGVU. The program is Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella and my guest today is David Douglas. He's the author of Marriage Beyond Black and White, an Interracial Family Portrait. We're in the process of talking about the influence of the Baha'i faith on his life. Uh, So when I gave that introduction last week, Uh, I mentioned how I happened to see you and your wife in the paper, an interracial couple, and Baha'i automatically came to my mind. It's almost like a stereotype, but it's a good stereotype, because I I just know that that there's a lot of interracial couples. And what's interesting is that certainly in mainstream Christianity today, there is uh, no um, stamp of disapproval. Uh, 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 on interracial marriage that is not forbidden in judaism it is not forbidden uh i can in buddhism it's not forbidden i can i can rattle off all sorts of religions where interracial marriage is on the books just fine but why is it that we actually see it in the baha'i faith more than we do in others at least i should say in my humble experience in west michigan
2: well, I think there are a couple of things going on. First of all, even though it's not these days uh, against any particular religious denomination to to uh, uh, marry interracially um, in this country, most of the religions have a very strong history of um, a cultural history of it being uh, forbidden and, and in the Christian churches in this country last century, that this century, the century uh, before last, actually, in the 1800s, and before, um, misogyny, as it was called, the mixing of races, was uh, actively discouraged by the church as being an ungodly thing, okay? And uh, I won't go into other, other um, cultures or religious traditions, but they, there's also been a tendency to uh, marry your own kind in other uh, faiths as well. The Baha'i faith has really has been founded on the principle of the oneness of, of humankind. Um, prejudice is viewed as an obstacle to unity, uh, the unity of our human race. It's also viewed as an obstacle to world peace. Um, the greatest one of the greatest means of abolishing prejudice is for people of different racial and ethnic backgrounds to not only uh, meet and socialize, but to intermarry. And I think that's one of the reasons that's it's encouraged within the Bahai faith because it's kind of like in the old days, uh, you know, if you had uh, one kingdom that wanted to have a, uh, a a relationship, or, or or bridge the gap with a, or get over a, a you know a warlike existence with another kingdom. They would have their families intermarry, right? and we have this separation in, in our society that's based on the false concept of race. But it's there, and the greatest way of bridging that that gap, overcoming the
1: separation, I think, is interracial marriage. It's interesting. Did you see the movie Rabbit Proof Fence? I did not. Do you know anything about it? No. Nope. Oh, okay. Share, share a little bit, though. That, that's fine. It's about when uh, Australia was a colony, and uh, you had the aboriginals, and then you had the, the white English population. And occasionally you would have the union of, of one of both peoples. And what they would do is the offspring of that union, the the British, or at that time Australian, uh, government would essentially kidnap you from your family. But what they would want to do would be to marry you off to a white for the purpose of breeding the aboriginal out of you. So it was interracial marriage, but for a completely different reason than, than what we're talking about here. They were hoping that in two or three generations, they were afraid of this, this mongrel race, this this third race that would come into being, so what they did is just made sure that you were no no longer in a position to uh to marry uh another half aboriginal or another aboriginal so it was just. Well, people have done some
2: really strange things with the concept of race over the years. Oh, and a lot of it is fear-based and based on the false concept of racial purity, as if the white race was the pure race and anything, um, any other mixture was a dilution of the white race. Right. So um, it's interesting how it played out in Australia. I think in this country it, it played out in, in making interracial marriage uh, um, illegal, in as you mentioned previously 27 states of this country
1: what would happen do you know if if your mother and father had visited did they ever visit one of those states while they were married uh,
2: they did not but there was in fact uh, a, a well there have been many couples who traveling through indiana were arrested um there was a i think the loving family um in the 1960s, who were arrested and they challenged that law and uh, won at the Supreme Court level. So, in the uh, late 1960s, uh, inter- the laws forbidding interracial marriage,
1: while still in the books of many states, were struck down. I think it was uh, North Carolina. They just had a referendum less than five years ago, uh, and they struck down the the uh, the law that forbade. Interracial marriage. It's just amazing that it would hang on the books that long. And I have no idea if there was anybody that opposed it. It, One can guess that it didn't get 100%. It may have gotten 90%, but it probably didn't get 100%.
2: Yeah, well, it probably didn't get 100%, or or at least not 100% support. It's very politically incorrect these days to uh, show any kind of racism uh, legally or otherwise so there are are, uh, lots of people who maybe have racist feelings who would not uh, show them particularly in the form of a vote Um, surveys do show that up to 25% of white Americans are opposed to interracial marriage Um, though it looks like that's a generational thing Um, younger people uh... Both races tend to be more liberal and more accepting of interracial marriage.
1: Who do you look to, if anybody, in African-American leadership in this country, uh, in the political system, the social system, other than, say, your own work and the work of the Baha'is? Is is there any any people that really impress you? There are lots of people who are doing good work.
2: Um, and I appreciate bits and pieces of what, what they've done. Probably the person who um, I most admire at this point is Julian Bond, who has been working quietly for the uh, NAACP for an, a number of, of years. Um, but I also appreciate the, uh, much of what Jesse Jackson has done and much of what um, L. Sharpton Uh, has stood for and done not that i totally endorse either of their political views and i think they both made some major mistakes And i think both of them um from my point of view are really not working hard enough to establish uh, the feeling of the oneness of the human family but they've done some admirable things um politically i like some of the things that uh uh, Colin Powell has done, not related to the current political situation, but in, in terms of his stance on affirmative action and, uh, his, his, uh, push for having greater involvement of this country in Africa and helping solve the problems of Africa.
1: And what is your take on what's going on at your alma mater at the moment?
2: Um, We're talking about the affirmative action suit at the University of Michigan. Of course, I am solidly behind the University of Michigan's stand that um, their affirmative action policy is beneficial to the school and legal. Um, I think that many of the people who oppose affirmative action uh, either don't value diversity or don't understand that our our system uh, systematically handicaps blacks and people of color, um, in a variety of ways. For example, if you look at funding in this state, um, as a matter of fact, not only this state, but uh, across the country in the early 1990s, Jonathan Kozol came out with a book called Savage Inequalities, in which he documented the differences in funding for public schools, black versus white, and showed that they, they differed by sometimes as much as 100%, that you'd have school districts that were side by side, the black school district got, say, an average of uh, 50% less than the white school district. Um, Now, we know that money is not everything in education, but it sure makes uh, a big difference if you have a school that has up-to-date textbooks, that has the best teachers that you can um, hire, that has advanced science equipment. I mean, those are all advantages that every person would want for every child that goes to school. So um, blacks in this country disproportionately go to schools that are underfunded. And so there's a lot of discrimination that occurs before they get to the the college level. So things like SAT scores, you know, ought not to count as much as they do. And we really do need to do something systematically in this society
1: to um, even out the playing field. Unfortunately, I think the anti affirmative action crowd is doing their best to paint pictures of, um, you know, illiterate black uh, surgeons. Uh, you know, working on you. Would you want somebody who is uh, doing a heart transplant to have gotten his or her degree because of affirmative action, uh, which if you know how affirmative action sure. works, you know, for instance, how uh, how minorities are included in the University of Michigan, you know, that wouldn't be that wouldn't right. be true. That wouldn't happen.
2: Well, the University of Michigan, for example, does not admit anybody who's not qualified. Now, the problem of the universe, that the University of Michigan faces is that for every spot that they have, there's probably a hundred qualified people who apply. So the the challenge they face is how do I uh, decide to, or how do they decide who to admit and who not to admit. Um, the folks who are against affirmative action really want it to be done, um, for the most part, based on grades and SAT, but don't seem to have a problem with other kinds of uh, uh, advantages, say, that alum, uh, the right, alumni, alumni family, get sure. or athletes get mm-hmm. um, or, or that, that kind of thing. Um, so... Uh, nobody who is unqualified is admitted to the University of Michigan, and furthermore, you don't graduate based on your admission. I mean, you can uh, once you get in, you still have to uh, pull your own weight
1: and and uh, uh, pass the courses, just no matter what your color is. David, uh, unfortunately, we're out of time, and I have about 15 other questions I wanted to ask you, but uh, very quickly, the book is "Marriage Beyond Black and White: An Interracial Family Portrait." by david douglas and his late mother barbara douglas and we mentioned last week barnes nobles borders all of the the classics and the mom and pop folks can uh, uh can order it for you and if you have any questions about the baha'i faith uh a uh, local phone number do you have one uh off, the top, of your not head? off
2: the top of my head uh, but it's listed in both the holland uh, 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 phone directory and the grand rapids phone directory
1: Okay. Well, David, thank you so much. You've been listening to Common Threads and Interfaith Dialogue. My name is Fred Stella. Thank you so much for joining us, and be here next week on
0: WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University.